in February of this year, 2013, I was invited to be a speaker at a Bible conference held by Church of the Redeemer in Mesa, Arizona. The topic for the weekend was titled, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. During that conference, I gave a series of four lectures. There was far more material than I could have dealt with in just four lectures. Since that time, I've expanded those four lectures into a total of 14 messages, of which you are listening to one of these. I encourage those who are listening to the messages to visit my publishing website, triumphantpublications.com, and read for free a written version based on all of these messages. These messages are being compiled into a book uh, titled, Theistic Evolution, A Sinful Compromise. The book is scheduled for release sometime in mid-June of this year, 2013. My website will guide you how to purchase a hard copy if you desire. If you don't want a hard version, you can read the transcript on my website by simply going to the site and click on the appropriate box titled, Theistic Evolution is Simple Compromise Transcript. Also, I have all the links to the audio messages found on Sermon Audio under the general topic, Theistic Evolution is Simple Compromise. May the Lord bless you as you listen and or read about this very dangerous view that is gaining ground, unfortunately, among certain churches and institutions. This Message deals with another compromiser by the name of Dr. Ron Chun. Did I not say previously that when one denies the sole authority of Scripture and makes anything to be on par with Scripture, then that addendum, and in this case, modern evolutionary thought, is tantamount to letting the fox into the hen house. In time, the fox will devour all the hens. Once the downward spiral begins in theology, it often results in great denials of biblical truth. In this message, I will look at further problems that have and are developing in the PCA, the Presbyterian Church in America, with regard to the doctrine of creation. In the previous chapter, I discussed the compromising positions of Dr. Tim Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. One of the men who are listed as a missionary and member of Metro New York Presbytery, PCA, is Dr. Ron Chun, who has taught classes at Keller's Church. Dr. Chun founded the New York-based Academy of Christian Thought, and he has written a book titled Project Timothy, the New Testament You Thought You Knew. Through his academy, he regularly lectures in various seminars, and according to the website of the Academy of Christian Thought, one will find this goal for the organization, quote, to engage the urgent issues of our times and persistent questions of all ages. We encourage interdisciplinary engagement with every field of human inquiry to better understand the impact of history, philosophy, culture, and the natural sciences on the Christian faith. We seek to articulate an enriched worldview with integrity, and foster a climate of inquiry within a sanctuary of doubt we call a theological safe space. End of quote. One of the programs for uh, this organization is called Project Timothy, whose purpose is seen uh, as, quote, Project Timothy provides a climate of inquiry within a sanctuary of doubt that we call a theological safe space to engage the global secular culture. Project Timothy teaches a method to make sense of the Bible by considering what the writer of each book intended to say, what the original writers and or what the original readers and hearers would have understood, and how we today might understand the text. For ourselves, in the quote from uh, the website of Ron Chun. Ron Chun's views of Scripture, the relationship between Scripture and science, and man's evolution is most illuminating and disturbing, especially since he is an ordained elder within the PCA. 
He took vows to uphold the confession. And if at any time he found himself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of its system of doctrine, he was to notify his presbytery of such changes. As we look further at Chung's beliefs, one wonders if Chung actually believes that his views are consistent with the Westminster Confession. However, Chung has given written documentation that he is out of accord with its teaching. He has openly challenged the document he vowed to support. On his blog site, titled Faith Seeking Understanding, which is part of what he calls a theological safe place, he wrote the following on August 22, 2006, quote, One of the most important and influential creedal statements today is the Westminster Confession of Faith, a 17th century document. However, its dated view of the creation account has made it an obstacle for fruitful science and theology conversations. Here we shall examine a few important points in which the creedal confession is not supported by the very biblical references it states its statements on. End of quote. Later in this message, I will quote all that Chung said on that date, but for the moment we must understand that Chung believes the constitution of his denomination is, in his words, an obstacle for fruitful science and theology conversations. And he believes the Confession's proof texts are op in opposition to the Scripture. I will let those familiar with both Scripture and the Westminster Confession decide for themselves who has erred. Dr. Chung's views are tantamount to the expression, In your face, Westminster Confession. But what about Chung's view of the relationship of the Bible to science? As I examine the theological views of Dr. Ron Chung, I can fully understand why there is an emphasis upon a climate of inquiry within a sanctuary of doubt that is called a theological safe place. What this really means is that Chung advocates views that are far outside the purview of the teaching of the Westminster Standards. As we shall soon see, Chung openly criticizes the Confession's understanding of the doctrine of creation. Mind you, like Tim Keller, Ron Chung is an ordained elder in the PCA, took vows to uphold the system of doctrine taught in the Standards. We shall see that there is nothing confessional about his views of creation. Moreover, when Chung states that Project Timothy seeks to understand what the writer of each book intended to say, this is simply a basis for him to advance whatever he wants the book to say as it is interpreted in the light of modern science. He and Tim Keller have identical views in this regard. I thought that the writers of Scripture did express what they intended to say, but what they actually wrote under the Spirit's inspiration. It's called plenary verbal inspiration. The word plenary means full or complete. Plenary verbal inspiration includes both historical and doctrinal matters. The word verbal conveys the idea that inspiration extends to the very words the writers chose. Hence, when one wants to know the intent of a biblical author, one should engage in careful exegesis of the text, comparing scripture with scripture, and seeing how words are used in their respective contexts. For example, when Genesis 1 says that God created Adam, from the dust of the earth, a word study of dust would be very helpful. The plain meaning of the text then reveals that God used actual dust. When the Bible says that God caused a deep sleep to come over Adam, and that he took a rib from Adam to make Eve and closed up the place where he took the rib from, then this should be understood in the plain meaning of the text. This is what the writer of Genesis intended to say, and he said it. However, Von Chun, Tim Keller, and other theistic evolutionists do not think that this is what the writer of Gen Genesis intended. They think the writer, in a very simplistic manner, used a figure of speech that has nothing to do with special creation. Rather, these theistic evolutionists insist that modern science has revealed for us the real meaning of Genesis 1. That is, that it was through organic evolution 
utilizing some Darwinian view of origins. Again, this is what I mean when I say that once a person makes the findings of modern science and authority in helping us to interpret the Bible, then a person can twist the plain meaning of Scripture in whatever way he wishes. And we shall see that Dr. Chun has indeed twisted Scripture to fit into his personal worldview. I know that using the word twisted is a serious accusation, but I trust that my readers will understand, or my listeners in this case, will understand why I'm making these accusations. I'm not the only one who has serious problems with Dr. Chun's views. The following quotes pertaining to Chun are from his book, The Bible You Thought You Knew, Volume 1, and from his blog site titled, Faith-Seeking Understanding. Some of these quotes are drawn from Rachel Miller's excellent posting in her blog site of her review of Dr. Chun's book. How does Chun see the relationship of science with the Bible? He says, quote, Since the question of biblical reliability cannot be affirmed by its historicity, literary, or theological components, we pay attention to these characteristics of the scriptures to get within hearing distance of the writer's intent. Thus you will find lapses in historical and scientific accuracy as we increase our modern accuracy of historical and scientific knowledge. Even doctrinal articulation of theological points need to be revised in each generation to account for our greater understanding of the world we live in. End of quote. This statement that I just read contains some very serious errors. First, Chun states that the Bible's reliability cannot be affirmed by its own historicity, literary, or theological components. This is a blatant attack on the sufficiency and authority of Scripture. Chun's views in direct opposition to portions of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, which is on Holy Scripture. That chapter says, in the confession, quote, the authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed and obeyed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. And then chapter 1, section 5 of the confession reads, and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. And then in chapter 1, section 9 of the Confession, it reads, quote, The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. When there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. So, the Bible's reliability in every respect regarding its historicity, literary, and theological components is based upon its own self-attesting authority. The Bible is not on equal footing with anything else. It is more than sufficient to inform us about everything, including man's origin. Second, Chun's quote reveals that there are lapses in the Bible's historical and scientific accuracy, meaning, in other words, that the Bible is wrong in some places. These biblical insufficiencies are remedied as he, we increase our modern historical and scientific knowledge, says Tune. This is a blatant attack upon the Bible's inerrancy, and it places the beliefs of scientists, of whom many are unbelievers, as the reliable check on the Bible. And third, Tune states that doctrinal and theological points need to be revised in each generation as that generation's knowledge of the world increases. Really? The Bible needs to be revised by each generation? So man's fallible and oftentimes rebellious knowledge becomes the greater authority than the Bible's own self-authority? Obviously, Chewing is of the opinion that Darwin's generation gained a greater knowledge than God's revelation contained. The philosophical and errant-specific scientific views of Darwin became the litmus test on the Bible's accuracy. For Chun, the Bible takes a secondary position 
to man's reasoning. Chin states, quote, Biblical knowledge is an older source that is limited to disclosure, divine revelation, rather than discovery, human investigation. So science is an extremely helpful check on our interpretation of the Bible by looking for convergence between our conclusions and what our minds can discover about the creation of God, we can compose a more comprehensive image of reality. End of quote. Science is the check on the Bible. Man's conclusions and man's mind can provide a more comprehensive image of reality, says too. Well, so much for the Bible self-testing authority then. Obviously, Chung does not believe what the larger catechism question informs us. Question number four of the larger catechism of Westminster says, How doth it appear that the Scriptures are the Word of God? The answer, The Scriptures manifest themselves to be the Word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. Question number five says, what do the scriptures principally teach? Answer, the scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. And then question number six says, what do the scriptures make known of God? Answer, the scriptures make known what God is, the persons of the Godhead, his decrees and the execution of his, of his decrees. The Bible, then, is God's revelation to man. It takes second place to none. God reveals authoritatively who he is, what he is like, how he is to be worshipped, and how he is to be glorified. To say that science is a check on God and that puny man's mind and experiences give us a comprehensive image of reality is a direct attack upon God's authority. No wonder Chu classifies his <clears throat> website as a theological safe place of doubt. Ron Chu continues his assault upon the Bible's reliability with the following comments about the Bible's historicity, and his liberalism is quite evident. Well, what about the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11? Chu states, quote, The Christian should read Genesis 1 through 11 with the assurance that we, that we worship the creator of all that exists and not be troubled by working out the mechanics of creation itself, because the Bible is silent on this matter. Any theological reflection that engages literature, history, philosophy, and science will always result in provisional insights, none of which should form litmus tests of faith. The first 11 chapters are Primeval histories, not chronological ones, they are mythological. This does not mean they are untrue, but they refer to events before they were human witnesses. They are therefore unverifiable, unfalsifiable. The first five of these then stories, up till the account of Shem, are not intended to be understood literally or even historically. Genesis 1 refers not to the origins of the material universe, but to how those pre-existing materials are now defined to function by God. The correct translation of Genesis 1-1 is when God began creating. The religion-science debate is rooted in Genesis 1, which describes the creation of the world in that poetic fashion and employs a seven-day week framework. The seven-day chronology has sometimes been interpreted literally by religious persons opposed to scientific theories, such as biological evolution and natural selection, so that the data from fossil records, geology, dinosaurs, and the like, must somehow fit into the seven days of the Genesis 1 creation account. End of quote from Chung. In the above statements, Chung insists that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are mythological, yet true, which is odd. Genesis is supposedly silent on the Mechanemic, mecha, uh, the mechanics of creation? Doesn't the plain reading of these chapters give us precisely the mechanism that God used? It's just that Chewing refuses to accept that God meant exactly what he said. 
God created the universe in the space of six literal days. Why is special creation unacceptable to Chun? It's because he is essentially a humanist in his perspective. By the term humanist, I'm using it in terms of how it is used in conservative Christian circles. Humanism is defined as man-centered, that man is the determiner of truth. Is this not precisely what Chun is implying? The Bible must bow to the sacred altar of man's fallible and oftentimes sinful thinking. Chun states that Genesis 1-11 is mythological because there were no human witnesses. Therefore, the events are unverifiable and unfalsifiable. Why should God's word be subject to human witness anyway? Of course there were no human witnesses in the origin of the universe. But the only witness that really counts is the testimony of the one witness who created everything, God's witness, and God is born witness in Genesis 1-11. Cheering implies that certain religious persons are opposed to scientific theories such as Darwinian evolution. I and other creationists are not opposed to science. We are simply opposed to pseudoscience of which Darwinism is one of the most conspicuous expressions. And yes, I do expect the data from fossil records, geology, and dinosaurs to fit into the six days of creation. And no, I do not reverse that order, because in reversing that order, it makes the Bible's veracity contingent upon men's interpretations of the geological data. Apparently, any of us, who actually think in religious and theological terms about origins, are essentially simpletons who are ignoring the supposed illuminating truths of modern science. Chun states, quote, Most people, whether religious or not, look to the realm of science for hard data about the environment and cosmology. Prior to the modern period and the rise of the natural sciences, People tended to be more simple or naive about such things and tended to think, if they thought about it much at all, about the origin of the world in religious and theological terms. End of quote. There is no question that Chun has made the findings of modern science, regardless of who these scientists might be and their religious views, as the basis for giving us an accurate understanding of the universe and man's origins. Well, what about Chun's view of man's evolution? A quick uh, perusal of Ron Chun's writings reveals that he is a committed theistic evolutionist. In fact, just like what atheistic evolutionists contend, Chun believes that organic evolution is an established fact of science. On June 10, 2005, Chun posted on his blog site an article titled, the Kirsten Confusion About Evolution, a Proposal for Divine Selection. Here are some excerpts from that article of Ron Schoen. He says, quote, Biological evolution states that all living things share a common ancestor by descent with modification. Charles Darwin's contribution was the plausible mechanism called natural selection, which sorts random mutations privileging those which maximizes optimal survivability. Biological evolution is a fact and can be observed in nature. Darwinism is a theory to explain the fact of evolution by adopting the mechanism of natural selection. The science and religion argument is not over the fact of evolution, but over the theory of Darwinism. Few scientists are informed lay people deny the idea of evolution. We are uncertain, what we are uncertain of is the mechanism behind it and the implications for our future existence. The notion of special creation, i.e., that God created each new species separately from others, is not biologically tenable. This does not mean that it's untrue, but that it cannot be a ground for understanding of biology. Some would say there's no warrant for such an understanding, even from the Bible itself. The majority of confessing Christians in science do not hold to the theory of special creation for each species, but believe that after the initial events of creation, possibly with distinct acts of creation for planet and animal life, 
all species of life forms came out of continuous lines of existing species. This expands the idea of a common ancestor to one of the several early ancestors. Post-Darwinian evolution consists of both Darwinian and non-Darwinian theories, which incorporate the latest scientific findings discovered after Charles Darwin's death. Darwinian theories of evolution generally points to an accidental beginning with no need for a creator God in a bleak future after biological corruption or death. Non-Darwinian theories of evolution posit a theory by which it is possible to reconcile evolution with a biblical explanation of creation along with an optimistic hope for a future when biological limitations on our brains will no longer constrain what our minds can achieve. Just like all other evolutionists, Chung seeks to convey the notion that organic evolution is not a theory but an established fact of science. Darwin's view is simply a theory of how evolution took place. Chung states that evolution is indisputable. The only debate is the precise mechanism by which it came about. Of course, in my previous messages, I have dealt with this logical fallacy of appeal to authority that evolutionists like to use. Again, a philosophy of science regarding origins can never be touted as a fact of science simply because it's beyond the purview of operational science. Please note how Chung subtly chides creationists when he says, quote, Few scientists and informed lay people deny the idea of evolution, end of quote. In other words, creation scientists and lay people who reject organic evolution are considered uninformed. We are poor, misguided people who just haven't come up to speed with the latest findings of science. Does the process of evolution undermine God's glory as creator? Chung says, quote, not at all. Is the six-day creation account central to the Bible? Probably not. The entire creation versus evolution controversy is based on a false dichotomy in the quote from Chung. What is Chung's view of Adam? An understanding of Adam and Eve is a central part of the Bible's doctrine of creation. Theistic evolutionists all believe that God used the mechanism of evolution to bring about all life forms, including man. Theistic evolutionists all believe that man, as we know him today, descended from a hominid, ape-like ancestry. Was Adam one man or a community of hominids? Where does the image of God fit into an evolutionary perspective? How and when did God bestow his image upon this hominid that was or became Adam? And what about Eve? How are we to understand the scripture of her being formed from Adam's rib, as the Bible says, from an evolutionary perspective. As a committed evolutionist, Chung has seemingly vacillated in his writings over a period of time between understanding Adam as a community of hominids and or as a singular hominid that God bestowed his image upon. As of 2006 and 2010, Chung was defending a notion that Adam and Eve represented a collection of pre-human hominids to which God at some point bestowed his image upon. On his blog site, Chung discusses the issue of bestowing, of God bestowing his image upon Adam and Eve, and it is noteworthy that this image came after their eating of the forbidden fruit, not before. Chung writes, If Adam and Eve did not sin, would they have moral knowledge? Image of God. Question. Since Adam and Eve acquired moral knowledge and therefore the image of God from eating the fruit, does this mean that they were never intended to have such knowledge? Not necessarily. God could have given them such knowledge by another means. The problem was that they acquired moral knowledge through direct disobedience and by an act of mistrust. God would have formed them in his image by giving them moral knowledge by a means other than the consumption of contraband food. End of quote. There is something very wrong with this statement because Chun states that God's image was bestowed upon Adam and Eve after the fall and that the moral knowledge of knowing good and evil constitutes apparently the meaning of possessing the image of God. The Bible does not say this. 
The Bible says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. According to the plain reading of Scripture, man, male and female, was specially created in God's image. Hence, this act was before the fall. Ron Shun has completely got this wrong. Shun's problem is that he is an evolutionist who is imposing that unbiblical paradigm upon Scripture and twisting it to fit into his evolutionary worldview. The scripture clearly affirms that man is distinct from all other life forms because only man was instantaneously created in God's image. Theistic evolutionists become extremely fanciful in their attempts to explain how hominids became humans possessing the image of God. Chewing asks the question on his blog site, Was Adam alone among the male humans? Was Adam physiologically and anatomically modern human? Chung's answer is, quote, Adam was likely to be physiologically, anatomically modern human, but certainly not alone among anatomically modern humans. His distinction was that he was the first anatomically modern human in the line of Jesus who was formed in the image of God, end of quote. Chung then asked the question, Whom did Cain marry, and who were the sons of God in Genesis 6? As an evolutionist, his answer is most perplexing and disturbing. He says, quote, Possibly other hominids, such as Homo sapiens, that may not have been given the image of God, they were clearly anatomically modern human, who could biologically mate with the Adamic race, and probably shared in the physiology. The characteristics of anatomically modern human, such as full-time bipedalism, cognitive fluidity for the development of art, science, and religious consciousness, a lowered larynx to permit consonantal sound production necessary for human speech, and symbolic language, as well as the capacity for self-consciousness, appear to not be the marker of the imago Dei. Instead, the true marker is the capacity for fear and guilt, signals of true moral cognition, in the quote. Now hold on here. Chun chooses not to see the image of God as the Bible defines it, but as the capacity for fear and guilt, signals of true moral cognition. Chung is justifying God's image in man as the moral awareness of fear and guilt. This is incredible. What does the scripture say? The fundamental nature of that image is explained in Ephesians 4.24, which reads, And put on the new self, which, is, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The Westminster Larger Catechism is very clear when question 17 asks, how did God create man? The answer is, after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, formed the body of the man of the dust of the ground and the woman of the rib of the man, endued them with living, reasonable, and immortal souls, made them after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, having the, the law of God written in their hearts, and power to fulfill it, and dominion over the creatures, yet subject to fall. End of quote from the Larger Catechism. There are several things to note in the Larger Catechism's answer. First, it explicitly denies any notion of evolution. That is, no common descent from other life forms preceding man. It says, after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female. There's no common descent. There are no hominids. There's no macro evolution at all. Second, the larger catechism improperly quoting Ephesians 4.24 as a proof text states explicitly that God's image in man consists of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Dr. Chu completely twists the scripture 
to fit into his evolutionary paradigm. For Chu, God's image consists fundamentally in his moral awareness of fear and guilt. This is an incredible view. Wan Chu's views have not gone unnoticed over the years. One person who attended some of Chu's seminars held at Tim Keller's Church of the Redeemer in New York City wrote an open letter to Ron Chu dated September 7, 2010. The gentleman who wrote this letter to Chu is Daniel Mann, who leads a ministry of evangelism in Washington Square Park and teaches at the New York School of the Bible. In this open letter, Daniel Mann states, quote, In February 2010, my wife and I attended a Ron Chu Academy for Christian Thought seminar at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, New York City, on the doctrine of humanity. Chun concluded, Adam and Eve were probably collective names describing a community of hominids, pre-humans, selected by God for moral cognition. End of quote. Daniel Mann was quite taken back by such teaching and wrote Chun a letter expressing his deep concern, stating that Chun's teaching contradicts New Testament teaching and consequently the credibility of the entire Bible. In this letter, I believe that Daniel Mann does a very capable job of exposing the grievous errors of Ron Chun. Mann's arguments stressed biblical evidence that Adam was a singular person not representative of a community of hominids. Ron Chun replied to Mann's charges. Here are some excerpts of Chun's letter of reply to Mann. He says, quote, You have followed my seminars for years now with the same questions, to which I have always answered in a civil fashion. This is then followed by public writings denouncing my conclusions. If by copying Tim Keller and Terry Geiger, you hope to draw their attention to my views, I can save you a lot of trouble. All my views about Adam and Eve have been published for more than ten years, and Redeemer as a church as well as Dr. Keller as a minister have never had any objections to my non-doctrinal interpretations. This means that while I hold to a certain view of who Adam might mean, no church doctrine in the history of the church has ever made this a litmus test of faith. No one should get their knickers in a twist over whether Adam was a collective or a singularity. We simply have no idea, so we go with evidence from as broad a compass as possible. To cite biblical evidence is naive. The Bible does not offer evidence. It offers trustworthy accounts by those who believe and should not be degenerated to become evidence. This cheapens the high view of scriptures that we ought to hold. Ironically, to make the Bible proof of God is to reduce its status to that of mere historical or scientific values. For me, that Adam is a collective name is so satisfying because it explains a great deal about the loving God whose mightiness Science is only just beginning to appreciate. I hope one day you too will marvel at the greatness and goodness of God. Indeed, anyone who has attended my seminary will soon learn that no creedal statements about the specific identity of Adam exists. The name is not mentioned in any ancient creed, and Paul uses the word metaphorically. It is as good an idea to do some real uh, reputable reading of the New Testament commentaries. End of quote. Of Chun's reply to Daniel Mann. Well, one of the most revealing things about Chun's reply to Daniel Mann is that he openly states that such views of his have been published for 10 years, and Dr. Ken Keller and his church have been fully aware of his views and never had any objections. This is most incriminating evidence against Keller and his church, who are openly allowing Chun to advance his ideas in a teaching position. Of course, we have already seen that Tim Keller has embraced theistic evolution, so it's no surprise. I noted in a previous lecture that Keller's church has hosted seminars by the Theistic Evolutionary Foundation, Biologos. Tim thinks that no one should get all upset over the notion that Adam was representative of a community of hominids or a singular hominid. Tim thinks that evolutionary views should not be a litmus test of orthodoxy. As far as Chung maintaining that no ancient creedal statement exists that specifically identifies Adam as false. Yes, the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed don't refer to Adam, but the high water mark of church confessionalism, the Westminster Confession of Faith, does specifically 
identify Adam as the first human with no common ancestral ties to other created life forms. But then we shall shortly see that Chu openly assaults the teaching of the Westminster Standards. I mentioned earlier that Ching seemed to vacillate over the years as to whether Adam is to be seen as a community of hominids or a singular hominid that God bestowed his image upon. In his 2011 book, The Bible You Thought You Knew, Volume 1, Ching does mention the possibility that Adam could be a singular person. Perhaps Daniel Mann's fine critique of Ching's community view may have had some impact on him. Ching says in his book, quote, is there any reason to think that the biblical Adam was a single person? Yes. Genesis 5.5 refers to the exact age that Adam died, suggesting that Adam was a particular male who was never born but emerged as an adult with no navel and no childhood. Where it gets tricky is whether he also contributed one of his ribs to form Eve. These contrasting hints allow some theological space for a difference of opinion. Finally, did Paul himself not refer to Adam as the first particular human? Most Christians use Romans 5.12 to infer that the Pauline Adam must be a singular adult male who was the second sinner. End of quote. While holding out the possibility of a singular Adam, we see Chung in his book implying that Adam could still be representative of that community, but he thinks it should be no real issue in the church, he writes. Quote, the Old Testament description of the origin of humanity, Adam, surely arises from an actual historical event. That much is evident. But whether the figure of biblical Adam represents a pre-existing group of people or a specially created modern-looking human who was not born, hence with no navel, and whether Eve refers to a single female crafted from a single rib, ought not to divide the church. There is sufficient grace in the theological space to allow for variance in interpretation as long as they remain provisional and open to review as we learn more about ourselves. Thus, we note the inconsistent use of the Hebrew word Adam in the Bible and cannot say with certainty whether a first human couple was specially created with no biological link to other life forms. In the quote. Chun simply does not think that an evolutionary view of man's origin is that big a deal to divide the church, that there should be allowance for variance of interpretations, and that we should always be open to change our views as we learn more about ourselves, which I suppose science is going to be the greater revealer to us if we need to change our theological views. This explains his utter antipathy towards the Westminster Standards, Chun's disdain for the Westminster Confession, is seen in what he wrote on his blog site in 2006. The title for his short article was, was Who is the Adam of the Christian Confession? Here's what Chung wrote on his blog site. Quote, One of the most important and influential creedal statements today is the Westminster Confession of Faith, a 17th century document. However, its dated view of the creation account has made it an obstacle for fruitful science and theology conversations. Here we shall examine a few important points in which the creedal confession is not supported by the very biblical references it states its statements on. A. Was Adam created immoral? The, Western, uh, the Westminster Confession contradicts the scriptural description of a mortal Adam who has not yet eaten of the tree of life and who only knew of good and evil after he had eaten of the forbidden tree. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 4, section 2, Adam is created with an immortal soul. Neither Matthew 10.28 nor Luke 23.42 refer to Adam, but to the post-fall humans who can inherit everlasting life. Adam was not created with an immortal soul, Genesis 3.22. B. Was Adam created righteous? In the same chapter, the Westminster Confession of Faith describes Adam as with knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, pointing to Colossians 3.10 and Ephesians 4.24. The problem is that both references describe the new self of the New Testament man, not Adam.
C. Was Adam created with a conscience? Chapter 4, Section 2, the Westminster Confession of Faith, states that Adam and Eve were created with the law of God written in their hearts. The reference given is Romans 2, 14 and 15. Paul was speaking not about pre-fall Adam, but about post-fall people. Gentiles who do not possess the Mosaic laws have no excuse because they have a generic law written in their hearts by which they will be judged. This is not an appropriate reference text to infer that the state of Adam's conscience. D. What may be concluded and what may be merely conjectured. The scriptures do not support the creedal claims of the Westminster Confession of Faith, but we have no warrant to say that all such claims are wrong. According to the scriptures, Adam was clearly made mortal. Any subsequent immortality would not be the fruit of the tree of life, but due to the resurrection of Christ that justifies Adam to everlasting life in the presence of God. We may also safely conclude that Adam was not created righteous, for Romans 3.10 declares that not one of us is righteous. As to Adam's conscience, we may only infer this inference as a permissive possibility, not an imperative certainty. In fact, Adam probably had a conscience, but his sin was not the violation of conscience or of moral law, since he had no knowledge of it yet, but of rebellion against God's explicit prohibition, that pre-fall Adam was made without conscience until he ate, until he ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The problem lies in the paradox of volition. If Adam did not have a conscience, he would not have been aware of his wrongdoing. But if he had already a conscience, then what did moral knowledge add to his conscience? The problem may lie in the assumption we make that conscience is synonymous with moral knowledge. It may well not be the case. Adam could have a conscience prior to the fall and acquired specific knowledge after the fall. It could have been, it could even be that Adam sinned not by violating his conscience, but rather by disobeying God, period. It is in rebellion against God's will that human will is sinful. This means that morality and conscience is subservient to and posterior to God, i.e., obedience to God is more important than derivative alliance to any moral law or even human conscience. The knowledge of both arise from God's divine fiat. Indeed, God is not moral, but mortality is defined by God's will. The creedal Adam of the Westminster Confession of Faith with regard to Adam needs a revision. And the leaders of the PCA have responded in part. Two years ago, the General Assembly no longer required that its ordained clergy hold to a literal six-day period of creation. End of quote from Ron Chu. Again, I would like to point out that Ron Chu is still an ordained elder in the PCA who took vows to uphold the teaching of the confession. And if at any time his views changed, that he would notify his presbytery. Like those of the Federal Vision Heresy, the Westminster Standards are too restrictive to open-minded views. Never mind that he swore an oath to uphold the very document he is now castigating. First, Shun states that the confession is an archaic document, a 17th century document with a dated view of creation, meaning it was before the Darwinian Revolution of the 19th century. But this is consistent with Chu's worldview. He has maintained all along that science is the best interpreter of the Bible. Not only is the Westminster Confession outdated, it is, according to him, an obstacle for fruitful science and theology conversations. An obstacle, really? Not only is the Confession an obstacle to meaningful theological discussion, but he says that it's outright wrong in its proof text used to buttress its content. Where is it wrong, Ron Chu? Well, it's apparently wrong in maintaining that Adam was created immortal. Chu explicitly states the, West, the Westminster Confession contradicts the Scripture. Chu says the Confession is wrong when it maintains that Adam was created righteous, and neither was Adam created with a conscience whereby the law of God was written on his heart. For all those in the PCA who think it's no big deal to maintain a literal six-day creation, 
just take a look closely as, at where it leads. It leads to such men as Tim Keller and now Ron Chun, who take that liberty or diversity and derive a theology fitting to their own desires. Let Ron Chun's words sink in when he says, quote, The creedal Adam of the Westminster Confession of Faith with regard to Adam needs a revision, and the leaders of the PCA have responded in part. Two years ago, the General Assembly no longer required that its ordained clergy hold to a literal six-day period of creation, end of quote. In making this statement, even Ron Chun is acknowledging that the confession embraces a literal six-day creation and that this revision to the confession has already taken place in part with the revision not to hold its members to a confessional view of the days of creation. The common saying holds true. Give man an inch, give men an inch, and they will take a mile. Ron Chun is not finished in his assault on Scripture. He makes these astounding comments about Adam and Eve as they relate to the biblical doctrine of original sin. In his book, Chun writes, quote, The reality of sin is central to Christianity. The reason Jesus died on the cross is because of sin. So if the first humans did not sin, it makes the cross redundant. A literal reading of Paul suggests that sin entered the world through a single human being, and through another, all will be justified. This would describe universal sin accompanied by universal salvation or universalism, something Paul himself would reject outright. So whatever Paul meant, he could not have meant this phrase literally. While most of the church fathers saw that Adam was punished for his sin with sinful desires, Paul himself said no such thing. In fact, to our surprise, Paul and Romans specifically introduced the doctrine that Adam's punishment was an expected outcome of his created humanity rather than something he did wrong. Elsewhere, Paul uses sin to describe behavior as in the teaching that sin was not caused by Adam and Eve, but is a term that describes the defiant behavior of Adam and Eve. In this interpretation, Adam and Eve were made loaded with sinful desires already. Not that Adam sought out sinful desires. This use of the word sin as behavior finds great convergence with the biological nature of human imperfection, despite our having been made good. But when Paul personified the word sin, his notion of a pre-Adamic existence of sin meant that Adam could not be blamed for any existence of sin per se. If we think that there was perfect morality before Adam and Eve were rejected from Eden, we cannot explain why, in the perfect state of moral goodness, they both disobeyed God. How can perfect goodness turn bad? End of quote. So, according to Chung, Adam did not do anything wrong, and that any view that makes Adam as the cause of sin is mistaken. Chung even says that Adam and Eve were made, quote, loaded with sinful desires already, end of quote. According to Chung, Paul personifies sin, therefore Adam cannot be blamed for any existence of sin per se. For Chung, there is no such thing as original sin. As I said, when one believes that the Westminster Confession is out of date, is an out of date document not in keeping with modern scientific discovery, then one can believe whatever they want. And Ron Chun is a glaring example of this. Well, what about Adam's fall? Chun says, quote, By discovering the philosophical convergence between scientific findings of neurobiology and theological reflection, of moral response in nolition, we can achieve a more robust redescription of the Christian doctrine for an evolutionary creatio continua as we anticipate the creatio nova to come. If the biblical account of what we call the fall can be understood as rising beasts falling upwards to moral awareness, it would make better sense of biological evolution theodicy, and the human condition, end of quote. In Ron Chung's mindset, 
Genesis 3 is not about a fall into sin, bringing sin and misery to the world, but it is best viewed as, quote, he says, rising beasts falling upwards to moral awareness, end of quote. Remember, earlier I quoted Ron Chung as saying that Adam and Eve's partaking of the fruit brought moral awareness of fear and guilt, which according to him constitutes the meaning of man being made in God's image. And why does Chung hold to such an anti-biblical view? It's because he says, quote, it would make better sense of biological evolution, end of quote. It is very clear that for Ron Chung, organic evolution is the authority, not scripture. Evolution is the guiding hermeneutical principle. For those who think that those of us who insist on strict subscription to the confession are troublesome meddlers, just let the views of Ron Chung convince you otherwise. This is where diversity of interpretations of the confession lead. It's not wholesome, is it? Believe it or not, Ron Chung thinks that those of us who want to make the Bible, who take the Bible literally, when the eternal evidence of Scripture intends for it to be taken literally, are the dangerous ones. He says in his book, quote, Always consider the medium used to convey the biblical message. Taking many biblical accounts literally wholesale is not a harmless act of naivete. It can actually be dangerous in creating bad theology to fuel racism, sexism, and a host of social ills that are morally repugnant, end of quote. According to Ron Chun, we creationists are the naive ones and potentially the dangerous ones. We are the ones who supposedly have the bad theology and the Westminster Standards are bad theology too. We can Chun states that his Academy of Christian Thought can, as he says, foster a climate of inquiry within a sanctuary of doubt we call a theological safe place, end of quote. Well, let's summarize briefly the main points of Chun's doctrine of creation as we end this message. One, the Bible's reliability cannot be affirmed by its own historicity, literary, or theological components. Two, modern science corrects the historical and scientific inaccuracies in the Bible. Three, each generation with new discoveries need to revise their theological understanding. Four, the Bible is silent on the mechanism of creation. Five, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are not to be understood literally or even historically. Six, special creation is biologically untenable. Seven, Adam may or may not have been a single person, but he could be a representative of a community of hominids. Eight, Regardless of the singular or communal view of Adam, he was a hominid, having evolved from lower forms of life. Nine, God's image conferred upon an existing hominid makes this hominid the biblical Adam. Ten, God's conferring of his image upon Adam and Eve as existing hominids was done after they ate the forbidden fruit, not before. Eleven, the image of God in man is the acquisition of moral knowledge, namely fear and guilt. 12. Adam's fall into sin is best seen as rising beasts falling upwards to moral awareness. 13. Original sin is the Westminster Standards describe man's fall is not true. 14. The Westminster Standards are archaic, needing revision. They are an obstacle to fruitful science and theological conversation. 15. Adam was not created with an immortal soul. 16. Adam was not created righteous. 17. Adam was not created with the law of God written, the law of God written on his heart. 18. Adam's sin was not a violation of God's moral law. 19. Adam and Eve were made loaded with sinful desires. And 20. Adam cannot be blamed for an existence of sin per se. Well, Dr. Ron Chun is an elder in the PCA who took vows to uphold the teaching of the Westminster Standards and vowed to notify his presbytery of any changes that he might have in his fundamental doctrines expressed in them. He has openly stated that these standards are wrong, needing revision. He, has he left voluntarily the PCA? No. 
At the 2011 meeting of Metro New York Presbytery meeting, one presbyter suggested that Presbytery look into the teachings of Dr. Chu. Did this happen? Was he disciplined by this PCA Presbytery? No. The Presbytery refused to look into it with strong vocal opposition to such a thing, and in fact a request was made and granted that the idea of looking into Dr. Chu's teaching not be recorded in the minutes, lest his name be illegitimately besmirched. So, do you think that we have a problem in the visible church today? Is there a serious problem in churches that claim the Westminster standards as their constitution? In Metro New York Presbytery, there is a serious problem. Dr. Chung's theological views are openly contradictory to the Westminster Confession in significant areas, but nothing is done about it. Nothing, nothing is done about the evolutionary views of teaching elder Tim Keller. This is how denominations are destroyed. This is how the PCUS, the Presbyterian Church in the United States, was systematically undermined over a hundred years. This denomination, the PCUS, once held to a biblical understanding of creation, but by 1969, it had openly embraced theistic evolution. The PCA is on the same path to destruction.